Good morning, everyone. The readings, this, the readings this morning are from John 12, verses 20 to 28, and then chapter 13, verses 31 to 14, verse 6. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When he was gone... Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay, your, lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? 
Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hi there. I'm Jeff, if you haven't met me before, and I have the privilege of bringing you our first in the series of the Purple Passages that we're going to be looking at. Uh, If you're in youth church, this is the time for you to head out. Your leaders are waiting up the back for you. Um, But if you're not in youth church, can you make sure that you've got a Bible in front of you because we need to be looking at that together. Uh, Purple passages, passages that every Christian should know and every non-Christian needs to hear. Uh, The word purple passages, the the phrasing that Tim's come up with comes from the idea of a purple patch, which I'd never heard about before. Uh, But he explained it that a purple patch is when you reach your stride or a team gets to a point in a season where they always kind of, that's when they start to get the roll on, that's when they start to really hit their stride. Um, I wonder though, uh, and this is my own thoughts, I wonder if purple passages is more because they should leave a mark. Now that might sound a little bit violent, but they should actually have an impression upon us and upon the people around us as well. And this passage that we're looking at in particular today is incredibly important because it tells us that Jesus is the only way. That's a very exclusive statement to make. In a culture that we're in where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and we'll agree to have that as the benchmark of all belief, to turn around and say that Jesus says he's the only way to God is a very exclusive thing to say. And we need to know why Jesus can say this and why we believe it. And so this is a very important passage for us to understand and for us to be able to help others to understand as well. Let me pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you that your word is clear. Lord, often um, when it is unclear, the problem is not with your word, it is with us. So we pray that you would bring clarity to us now. Help us to see what your word says and to believe what it says so that we may live lives that are fitting. And we pray that um, as these words are spoken, uh, that your word would be heard. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. About a month ago, I was sitting at home minding my own business when I heard a like at the door. I got up. Uh, went to the door and there was this young man standing in front of me. Uh, I've actually reached a point in my life where I can refer to someone as a young man. That used to be me, but it's no longer the case. And uh, he, he, was, he had the same hairstyle as me. Um, there was a slight difference that I noticed, though, when he left. Um, he had kind of a curl of hair at the back of his head. He introduced himself and said he was a Buddhist monk. I thought I hadn't ever met a Buddhist monk before, not in Wagga at least, and that he had three books that he'd love for me to have, books that uh, were written by Gandhi or at least inspired by him, and he asked me if I knew who this man was. I said I'd, I'd heard about him. He said he was an amazing teacher. And now I didn't handle this situation, I think, the best. In reflection, I think I spoke too quickly. Uh, but I retorted to, I said to him, I know someone better. I know a better teacher. Uh, He ignored my comment and continued with his, these are great books that you need. 
And so then I pushed in with, well, can you tell me what you think about Jesus? And he said, well, yes, he's one of our mentors. What, what do you mean he's your mentor? Well, he's, he was a great teacher. He was a good man. I said, but what about you? What do you think about Jesus? And at that moment, the, the shutters just went down. Now, I'm not a big man, I'm tall, but I'm not imposing. Uh, but he backed away from me as if I had instigated something in him, some need for, for him to remove himself from that situation. And he, he, he kind of bowed to me and he said, you have a faith I can see, thank you for your time. Now, that irked me a little bit as he walked off. Uh, one was that he was happy to come and knock on my door and talk about his faith, but I couldn't talk about mine. The conversation wouldn't happen. But the, the other thing that really irked me was that, that line of, you have a faith. That we all have a faith and they're all equal and it doesn't really matter which one you have. That irked me. And then a week later, I was um, camping with my family. It was a camp that was a, it was a Christian camp, but there's lots of campers in there, some Christians, some not. You can tell the Christian ones because at night time the guitar comes out and you start to hear music and singing songs that you, you know, um, which is actually quite pleasant. I really actually enjoy that. Uh, but the caretaker came around and he, he, didn't know, he didn't know whether we were Christian or not uh, and he loved to just talk. We asked him a few questions and we got his life story that night. He told us about some very hard things that had happened in his life, um, devastating things. And at the end, he just finished with, well, I had a faith and that got me through. And again, something inside me went, no, that irked me because I think that was the safe thing to say. He didn't know whether we were brothers in Christ and so it was very safe for him to say a faith because then he won't offend anyone and again it puts Christianity on that same spectrum as every other religion. He had well-meaning intention in it but it actually downplayed what it is we have. Jesus, this statement that Jesus says that we all are very familiar with, I am the way, the truth, the life is incredibly exclusive. And so we need to figure out how can Jesus actually say that? Are we right in believing that Christianity is, Christianity is the way? No other way. And so in order to get to verse 6, we need to see the lead up to verse 6. So we're going to deal with verse 1 to 6. We're not kind of pushing into those other verses. They were there for you, chapter 13, end of chapter 13, to try and gain a bit more of the context. Um, and let me paint a little bit of it for you. So Jesus here, he's in the upper room. And for the next few chapters, we actually just get a conversation that's happening between Jesus and his disciples now. He's very close to going to the cross and uh, it's all compacted into these chapters. So we've had three years of ministry and now we're at the height. On that day, um, he had just been brought into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, hailed as the coming king, 
The palm branches had been laid down. He had the crowd's support. His disciples would have been on a high. They had found this bloke according to you know, their thinking. They had, they're the ones, they're in a circle. And now everything's coming the way they thought it would. He's going to kick out the Romans. There's going to be a king again. And then that night, he shares a supper with them and says something about being betrayed, which they didn't really understand. And then Judas left and they didn't know why he went away. And now it's night time. They've had a big day. And unknown to them, they're going to have an even bigger night. And at that moment, when they think they're on the high, is when Jesus says, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't follow me. I think you could have heard a pin drop in that room. All their expectations had suddenly been brought undone. Jesus is going away. Why is he going? What is he thinking? Where is he going? Why can't we follow him? Jesus says to them, you can't follow me now, but you will later. Now, I actually want to spend a little bit of time in this verse, the first verse, because it's where Jesus wants to settle the fears of his disciples. And it gives us a great picture of how we conquer troubling news. See, Jesus, he is tender towards his disciples. He's gentle towards them. Actually, when he reveals that news to them, if you notice, he, he called them his children. Now, if you uh, have got a bit of memory to back to Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about this coming servant king, he describes him as wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Isaiah isn't inserting in there God the Father. He's talking about Jesus. That's Jesus' heart that he's talking about. He has a fatherly heart towards us. And you see that here where he calls his disciples, my children. Not only that, but he wants them to not stay where they are in their inner turmoil. He sees their heart, the very core of their being, is being ground and twisted. That word trouble doesn't just mean upset, it actually means, picture a boiling kettle, the water just boiling away, that rolling boil or a rolling sea. It includes not just their emotions, but their thoughts, their imaginations, their purpose. Everything is being ripped apart. And Jesus sees that and his response well, what is it? You believe in God, believe also in me. Well, how is that going to get you through? Is Jesus just talking about a belief in the existence of a God? Is the belief in the existence of a God going to help you when your world comes crashing down? No. There are plenty of people who profess to believe in God whose worlds come crashing down and that belief doesn't conquer anything. Now Jesus is saying that word belief is more than just I know something. My children, 
know that I love them, they believe that I love them, but they're convinced of my love for them when I act towards them in love. So they, they know the truths about Dad's love for them, but they know Dad to be true to that when he acts towards them in love. And so Jesus is saying, be convinced about who God is. And that word God is not just a throwaway kind of your own imaginations of God. That's actually a Greek word that encompasses Elohim, God the Almighty, the God above all, with Yahweh, God I am, the eternal God, the everlasting God, the God who is in need of nothing, who is all-knowing, who sustains all things, who never needs to grow and who never fades or shrinks, the God who is the God of all comfort as well. This is the God that Jesus reminds his disciples, you believe in him, you know him, you know me. Trust him, trust me. Know the truths about God and know God to be true. And if you notice, this isn't just a throwaway line from Jesus either in that he prescribes to his disciples the exact thing he himself practised. In the Bible reading we had in chapter 12, Jesus' own heart is troubled. It's the same phrasing there. As he thinks about what lays before him, his heart is troubled. And what does he do? Glorify your name, Father. I trust you. Gethsemane, his heart is in turmoil. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. I know the truths about God and I know God to be true. And so when devastating news comes, it's real. The inner turmoil is a right thing to feel, but... It must not remain. Jesus is saying, it will not remain. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, when my um, my mum was actually my age, when she was 38, uh, my dad, her husband, was suddenly killed in a farming accident. So no lead-in, just gone devastating, inner turmoil, dealing with her own grief and the grief of children, all these thoughts about what is going to happen to us. My dad was the sole breadwinner of the family. My mum gave to us kids an amazing example of knowing the truths about God and knowing God to be true. How did she do that? She used to write um, verses on a piece of paper. I remember they were written in blue permanent marker, and at times there was red in there when there was a special word that she wanted to remember, and she put those on her fridge so that they were constantly there reminding her. I don't remember any of the verses, but I do remember a phrase that she put up there, which... Um, she coined herself and it was a phrase in response to some uh, well-meaning people 
when people are going through grief, you often don't know what to say. Um, and these people didn't know what to say, but they'd heard these catchphrases that we put around, like, you know, the believe in yourself, you're strong, you'll get through this. Pictures of cats about to fall to their doom, holding on with their claws. The, the, what they said to mum was, time is a good healer. And there's a truth to that in that time does remove you from the instance of pain. And so I remember my mum wrote down, time is a good healer. But then under it, she wrote, but the Lord is far greater. Do you see how she was able to know the truths about God and know God to be true? This doesn't mean that you don't feel the pain. It doesn't mean that the news is not devastating. But it does bring a calm and a peace that others who don't know God have not got access to. It's real, it's right, but it doesn't remain because we know the truths about God and we know God to be true. So how do you deal with a troubled heart? If devastating news has come to your door, how have you dealt with it? Anger? Impatience? Have you gone within yourself and become so absorbed in your own thoughts and feelings and emotions? Have you turned to substances to dull the pain? Or have you reminded yourself and preached to yourself the God who you believe in and that he is true to who he is? Because whether you've received devastating news or not, it's coming it's just a matter of time. We live in a fallen world. Sooner or later, there will be a phone call. There will be a diagnosis. Something will happen that will rip your world apart. And unless you know the truths about God and a God who is true to that, you will turn everywhere else only to find that your devastation remains. That's for you. How do you deal with it? But what about helping others, particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you help them? Listen to them, absolutely. Offer them the support that they need, definitely. But the greatest service you can do to them and for them is to remind them of the God they believe in. That might not mean actually sitting down and shaking them and saying, don't you remember who you believe in? That might not look like that at all. I think actually the best way to do it is to pray for them. In their hearing. Pray for them and as you pray for them and they're listening to you, pray for them the truths of God so that as they hear you love them the most by praying for them, they're reminded of the God that they believe in. That's the best way to deal with a troubled heart. And know 
that the trouble doesn't just go. Jesus constantly wrestled with that inner turmoil facing the Father's wrath. He knew what it was going to be. The news was going to be devastating. But he continued to focus back on the God of his, he believed in. And that's what he's telling his disciples to do here. This is the way we deal with troubled hearts. Now that's just a big lead-in into Jesus trying to calm the disciples because now he's going to tell them actually where it is he's going. Verse 2. Crikey, you're thinking, Jeff, get on with it. We'll get on with it, it's all right. All right, my father's house has many rooms. All right, easy concept, yeah? God's dwelling place, God's space has lots of places. It's, there's, there's space in God's place, is what Jesus is saying. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, this is a little bit nerdy, but you need to bear with me because it's, I think, really significant. that The NIV translation that we have, or the one that I've just read to you, is the newer version, and it's, it is more accurate to the Greek, but not entirely. If you've got an older version, you'll notice that the phrasing of that sentence is quite different. The phrasing of the older version actually is a statement and it says, basically, if there was bad news that there was no place in God's space, then I would have told you that beforehand. I would have said, guys, get your tickets now. There's not much room. That's the way the older version reads. If there was bad news, I would have told you that. But good news is there is space in God's place. The newer NIV, as I said, is a little bit more accurate but it is also a little bit, it trips you up a bit. Because if you look up here, now this is um, more of a word-for-word interpretation of the text. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Do you notice what's missing? The word there is not there. In the Greek, the word there is not there. By the NIV inserting that, straight away your mind thinks, Jesus is going to heaven to make something great for me. He's going to turn down the sheets, put up the flat screen, put in the best colour scheme that you can think of, make sure that I've got a window view. And he took seven years, seven days to make the world. He's been gone 2,000 years. Mate, my place is going to be awesome. That's my, that was what I was thinking when I was um, in church growing up. That was what was told to me. Don't worry, earth's terrible, but God, he's making something awesome for you. But does that actually fit with Jesus' teaching? Does it fit that Jesus would say, calm down, guys, heaven's going to be awesome? That's where I'm going. I'm going to heaven and it's going to be awesome, so calm down. I don't think it does. The other reason too is, Jesus, this is a rhetorical question. Jesus is saying to them, I've told you this already. I've told you that I have to prepare a place for you. 
which means that unless he does, there's no place for them. He's told them already. So where has he told them? Our question needs to be. Well, I think there's at least three places I can think of that he's told them that he's going to prepare a place for them. If you're a quick Bible flicker, you can come with me. I'm only going to read the first one and then I'll refer to the other two. But we're back in John 3. Jesus is with Nicodemus here. And in John 3, verse 14 and 15... Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So he's referring back to a time where people of Israel were in the wilderness. They'd rebelled against God. He'd sent serpents in and they cried out for mercy. And God's response was, Put a serpent, a bronze serpent, on a pole. Here's the symbol of the curse. Lift it up. Put it up there for people to look at. As they look at the symbol of the curse, the curse being lifted from them, then they will be saved. And Jesus is saying, that is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to take on the curse of sin so that everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. If I don't do that, there's no place for anyone. The curse must be lifted. Then we get to John 10, where Jesus is the good shepherd, talking of himself as the one who, in verse 14 to 19, is going to lay down his life. That he has the authority to lay it down, he has the authority to take it up again, and he lays it down. Why? Because there's a threat. If he doesn't lay his life down, all the sheep are going to be removed from that place. There will be no place for them. He lays it down not only to protect his sheep, but to bring other sheep in. He prepares the place by dying in that place. And then finally, if you want to flick to chapter 12... Verse 20 to 26 is where Jesus refers to himself as a grain of wheat or a kernel of wheat, that the kernel of wheat must die in order for the fruit to come and that whoever serves his father will be with him. And so Jesus has been telling them all along that he needs to prepare a place for them because if he doesn't, there's no place for anyone. Added on to this, if you even just think of the timing of the crucifixion. What day of the week did it happen? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Friday. In the Jewish week, what day is that called? Does anyone know that? It's called the day of preparation. Preparation for the Sabbath rest that's to come. And Hebrews 4 talks about that there is a Sabbath rest for God's people. How do we get to that Sabbath rest? Well, Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation, preparing the place for us. 
So this isn't Jesus telling us that heaven is going to be awesome, that he's going to fit out our room just the way we like it. He's telling us, I'm going to the cross so that there is a place for you. There's plenty of room up there, but unless he goes, there's no one's going to be admitted. And so it's the cross is the place where he prepares that for us. See, the most troubling thing for the disciples was being separated from Jesus. They didn't know that that was only going to be for a short time. It should be the most troubling thing for everyone to think of being separated from Jesus for eternity, which is where we will be if we do not trust that he has taken our place. To prepare the place, the Son of Man must be lifted up, the good shepherd must lay down his life, the grain of wheat must die. And we need to feel the weight of that, that Jesus became a curse for us. He left his place, his throne. There was no place for him in the inn. There was no place for him to lay his head. There was no place for him among his people. His place was on the cross, bearing our full sin and God's wrath so that you and I could have a place. There was no walk in the park for Jesus. His heart, his core was in turmoil. Yet he trusted himself to his Father's will. There was a Puritan by the name of John Flavel who kind of imagined what the conversation would have been like between the Father and the Son as they contemplate how they will rescue humanity. So he's saying before the creation of the world, Jesus was crucified. What did, what did that conversation look like between the Father and the Son? And so he, he tried to picture it and I think that he's done a great service to us in the way in which he's pictured that conversation. So I'm going to read it to you now. He says, the Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction on them or will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin. I must be true to who I am. Justice has to be measured out and the measure of that is eternal ruin for these people. And the Father says, what shall be done for these souls? Can you hear the Father's heart? Justice must be done but I want, we need to do something for them. The son's reply is, my father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their security. Bring all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there would be no after payments with them. At my hand you shall require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father says, But my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay to the last cent. There will be no discounts. If I spare them, that's us, I will not spare you. 
I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it improvish all my riches, empty all my treasuries, yet I am content to undertake it for them. We should get a sense of the great cost it was to the Father and the Son and the great love that they have for us. That though we were their enemies, Jesus willingly takes up our place, suffers in our place, so that we could be in a right relationship with God, so that we could have a home with him. He goes to the cross and then to the Father so that we can go straight to the Father and not to the cross. So he's told his disciples, this, this is where I'm going. But they still, they still don't get it. Thomas, Thomas is not speaking for himself. He's speaking on behalf of the disciples. Lord, he says, verse 5, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't know the destination. How can we even put the coordinates in to get there? Again, listen to Jesus and listen to the tone of a father's heart towards his children. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I will get you there. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I will get you to the Father's place. I think sometimes when it comes to the Bible, we just need to um, do what Winnie the Pooh does. I really love Winnie the Pooh. I love reading the books and uh, the latest Movies have been quite good too. I went to see Christopher Robin, reluctantly at first, and then really enjoyed it. Um, but in Christopher Robin, Pooh is sitting in the train, looking out the window, and he invents this game. And the game's called Say What You See. And so he looks out the window and he just, tree, dog, man, tree, tree, dog. And so he just sits there saying what he sees. And I think sometimes that's the best way that we can understand a text. Say what you see. This is an exclusive statement by Jesus. It's not cryptic. He's telling us exactly the way that we get access to the Father. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. And the only reason Jesus can say that is because he's the one who's going to prepare the place. If there was another way to be offered, God would have done it. Jesus pleads with the Father, is there any other way? And if not, I trust you. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. It had to be through Jesus. And I think when you get that, when you understand that, then it changes everything. Jordan Peterson, a name you might be familiar with, if not, he's a um, clinical psychologist. 
over in Canada, very famous for his willingness to step into controversial things and to stand his ground and say why he believes that what he believes, even though it might be against the, the flow of everyone else. He's a very, very smart man. And he seems to be right on the edge of belief in Christ. In one of his podcasts, I don't listen to him that often, but every now and then I'll just listen in, especially when his podcasts are, you know, labelled like um, God, or and the meaning of life. I kind of want to know what he's actually thinking there. In one of his podcasts, this is what he said. Now, when I read this, listen, he was crying as he said this. This is the wrestle that's going on in his heart. He's talking about believing that Jesus, that God exists. He believes that there has to be. Right? But believing that Jesus came in order to rescue us, in order to die in our place, this is what he's struggling with. I don't know what to make of it, he says. Partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Gosh, he's being honest, isn't he? What would happen to you if you fully believed that the Son of God died in your place? How would that affect your life? It terrifies Peterson to think. It would completely transform everything you do the way you think about your relationships, the way in which you work, the way in which you speak to and of, of others. Your priorities in life, mustn't they can't be narrowed down to you anymore. If God has done this for you, then if he's poured out his life for you, then surely the right response is to pour out your life for him. Peterson gets it and it terrifies him because he, because he wants to know it's true but he doesn't want to face the fact of this means that I'm going to have to shift gears completely. It's, that should trouble our hearts. It should trouble our hearts when we think of people being separated from God forever. That should be what troubles our hearts. The disciples were troubled at the separating them, themselves from Jesus because they knew him. He wasn't just facts to them. He was a person. He was a friend. How much more so should it trouble our hearts to know that there are people who will be separated from him because they refuse to believe in who he is and what he has done on their behalf. And friends, listen, it should trouble our hearts. That should be real and it's right, but that must not remain either because we trust in God. We trust in a God who is all-powerful and who can change hearts. And so is the gospel exclusive? Yes. Never be apologetic about that. But it's exclusive because God is inclusive. He wants all to come and so he has made a way for all to come. And if we broaden it to being a faith among faiths, we do everyone a disservice and we insult the God who saved us. We have the faith. 
You say that, you'll cause discussions. I have the faith. But it's not about me, it's about who I put my faith in. So if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus, the way, the truth and the life, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere else. Don't add anything to him. Trust in the God you know. He will get you there. And if you're not a Christian this morning, don't go anywhere else. Don't add anything to Jesus. Don't think that you can mix things together. God has made a way for us. He has prepared a place for us through Jesus and only through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your great love. Lord, we could never speak of or understand the depths of it. Anything that we say about it is always going to do a disservice to it because it will never plummet fully. But Lord, we want to thank you that you have made a way for sinners to be in your place and for the great cost that you gave for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became a curse for us so that we may dwell with you forever. Please help us never to move on from you. Keep us firm with you. And we pray that many would know around us that there is a way, that you are the truth, that you are the life, you are the way to true life. And we ask this for your glory, for our good and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.